Will you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 10? If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the back of your order of worship. I um, sat down with my family last night to read this passage the day before worship, and uh, it ended with a lot of laughing. Would you uh, pray for me as we read a bunch of names, a bunch of cities, a bunch of people spread before us. This is one of those passages that you might uh, at home read and take up and go, what in the world does the Lord want me to learn from this? A list of names. What does it have to do with me? How could this be a benefit to my soul, to my family? Well, it's helpful, I think, anytime you study the Bible to ask the question, what does this tell me about God. And if it tells us something about God, then it has some duty for us, something that we are to believe. And so this morning, that will be the question that is set before us as we read the table of nations. As we say, how does, how does this fit in the whole story of the Bible? I want to remind you of where we've been so far. What God has revealed about Himself. Genesis 1, He is the sovereign God. The One who has made all things by His design. And as He goes on to show mankind, not only His design, but His purpose and His mission. It seems to fail immediately in Genesis 3 and then 4. And then we see that all of man has become so wicked that God just floods the whole earth. And yet he starts over. But he's never changed those first things. That he's sovereign. That he has a plan and he has a mission that is unfolding. And so when we come to the table of nations, those things are set before us. So let me pray as we read God's Word. Our gracious God, we thank You for what You set before us. For what You reveal to us in Your Word from the beginning of the Bible to the end, of Your power and Your might and Your sovereignty, of Your graciousness, Lord, of Your judgment, of Your salvation, we give You praise. Would those things rise to the surface this morning as we read chapter 10? Of all these nations, Lord, nations whom You have regard for, I pray that in it, Christ would be made known that we would be drawn to Him, that Your Spirit would be at work. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This morning we're going to consider uh, three things revealed to us by God in the table of nations. So let me read uh, to you, and as you hear it being read, these are the things I want to draw out. That God is gracious. That God is patient. And that God is sovereign. This is God's Word. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagamar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. For these, the coastland people, spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, 
Havala, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca, and the sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna, and in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Nephtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kalsohim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, and the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arkpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. And to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, and in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shephleth, Asmarbeth, Gerar, Hadaram, Uzal, and Dikla, Ubal, Abmiel, Sheba, and Ophir, Havala and Jobab, and all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood." This is God's word for his people. Even if you might ask, how? (laughs) This morning, we'll see God is gracious, God is patient, and God is sovereign. First, God is gracious. What's being painted for us here in this, this early history of mankind is a story, right? It's... Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is a story of God's redemption for His people. So that when you read verse 1, it's easy just to read over it quickly. Let me just get through this chapter so that I can move on and get to the rest of the Bible that has something to do with me. But when you read verse 1 and it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Sons were born to them after the flood. I want you to say, praise God that sons were born to them. Praise God that He is this kind of gracious God. I want you to really wonder at it because this isn't some disconnected story, some Old Testament group of people. It doesn't matter to me. This is your origin. This is your story. And verse 1 shows us God is gracious. That after His judgment, there are people born to fill the whole earth. 
That's grace. It's unmerited favor of God. And I want you to remember that is the key to understanding how God always acts towards us as human beings, as people. You never earn it. You can't earn it. And you don't turn Him away because you fail. You receive grace because He loves to pour it out on hopeless sinners. And this was a list of them. And so has it been all the way back to the garden. And God is always in action with His grace. And these men, uh, the, the men listed here, they have been on the boat ride of their life. And outside that boat, it was crystal clear. A message was being given as the world was under the water of God's wrath and judgment. And they sat safely in a boat. It was God that was saving them. And He was washing clean the world that had rebelled against Him. I mean, what kind of world were we dealing with? Genesis 6 says, uh, shocking knowledge that all of mankind was growing in numbers and so was their wickedness. It says that every thought of his heart was evil continually. That there was even a boat is shocking. And verse 1, sons are born to them after such a, a judgment. Man was bent on forsaking God and making his own way. And I tell you, I wish, uh, I wish that the flood had done more than just uh, you know, cleanse the earth, but it had cleansed us. I wish that the flood had washed away sin, that that was gone too, that it was over, and this recreation had the same beginning that Genesis 1 and 2 had, that it was a sinless environment that had eliminated the problem so that every day I wouldn't have to deal with, that you wouldn't have to deal with this battle of sin in our flesh reminding me that all is not well. Because it's not too long after the boat ride. A new harvest has grown up. Noah gets drunk and his son uh, follows shortly after him in his sin. I mean, it's like Genesis 3 and 4 on repeat. The father sins, the son falls. Here we go again in this new story. And it seems like God would abandon this, this experiment of mankind, but it's not an experiment. It's a plan. A plan wrapped up in a covenant. A plan wrapped up in a God who has promises. God's going to fill the earth with His image bearers even if for now that image is marred by sin. And this earth will be filled with both blessing and curse. And just as He promised He would never flood the earth again, that's a, that's a gracious act. He is still going to deal with sin. And He will clean up this mess in another way. And that is why even with a story like this, a story of recreation, we're never to forget the first story of creation. Of a gracious God who forms man in His own image. Of a gracious God that even after Adam and Eve fell in sin, He covered their shame and their nakedness 
and a gracious God who says, I will fix this. Genesis 3.15 That there will be one who crushes the head of the serpent, taking a wound himself. You see, the, 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 that promise was never describing a, a boat and a flood. It was describing a Savior and a person. God intends to be gracious towards sinners by a human figure, not just some environmental action. That's what the table of nations is about. That's where it's leading us. So he gives us a list to show us that he has regard for the nations and the ways in which he will act graciously towards them. In fact, a, a, a list of nations, prevalent theme, the nations will never drop out of the eyes of God, out of the mouth of God, out of the concern of God. It's just a couple chapters later in Genesis 12 that he draws up out of the nations one man, Abram, and he tells Abram, it's through you. It's, listen, it's through you. I've, I'm going to give you great promises. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Christ doesn't forget the nations before He he ascends into heaven. The last thing He says to His apostles is, you are to have regard for the nations. He sends His apostles out. You're not to stay here in Jerusalem. I want you to go out and out and out. And I want you to make disciples of all nations so that we arrive at the end of the book of Revelation. And still, the nations are on God's mind when he says every tribe and tongue and nation will be singing together before the throne of the Lamb of God, saying salvation belongs to our Lord. God is gracious. Chapter 10, He cares about the nations, and that never stops to the end of the book. You see, we don't get there, though, to the end without starting here. Without going to the beginning where God graciously fills all the earth. You see, He shows us both our origin and our destination. What a gracious God that we might not find ourselves wandering around this world wondering, what is the meaning of all of this? Everything seems so random. There's so many tribes, there's so many nations, so many tongues. What is the meaning? Why why have I been created and it's like a, at this point in redemptive history, at this point, it's like if you imagine a triangle. We are somewhere down here on this big base. And as God moves from here onward, it's a narrowing. It's going to get uh, sharper and sharper and sharper because it's coming to a point. Here we see all the nations. And in a moment we'll, we'll focus on Shem out of this line and it narrows to Abraham. Now, through Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations. And from Abraham comes Isaac, then Jacob. And Jacob is called Israel. And from Israel arrives a king named David. And from David, a promise that, David, from your line, someone will always sit on the throne. Well, who is it? It keeps narrowing as the story goes along until we arrive at the Messiah. The one who was promised is Genesis 3.15. The one of that promise that didn't fail, by the way, when it was on razor-thin edge, when it came down to just eight people being left in the earth, yes, God still preserves His seed and keeps His promises. So that is, it gives us a list here. It's the reason Luke picks up on it in chapter 3 and says, 
Let me tie the story together. Here is the Christ, the promised one, and he tracks it all the way back to Shem, to Noah, to Adam. It's one story, guys. It's one story, one trajectory. And even as these nations that we read and people groups go out and form and seek to forget God, we have a God that will never forget His covenant promises or His purpose. That is what a list of names and peoples and cities mean. God's grace is both expansive and it's particular. It's expansive as He pours out His blessing in the expanding nations, filling the earth with His image bearers and sending them out over the world. And it is particular because at the same time the number of people grows, He is narrowing in on that promised Messiah. So I might ask for this first part, God is gracious, as a way of application, whose son are you? I ask that because sons here are important. And I mean sons and daughters, by the way. Verse 32 says, From these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. But to what end? But to what end has He given life, both to Shem and Ham and Japheth? What end has He given you life? What is the meaning of life? The world wants a story. It wants a purpose. Here is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. A plot line that leads to a Savior in the midst of profound chaos of this world with its different colors, and its different languages, and its different nations. Everyone wants to write their own story. This is your story. It is a big story that draws together all individuals that walk this earth to one bloodline, to one person. It's a story of redemption. Not many gods, but one God. So God's grace has given life. Have you received that grace? You receive it by faith and trusting in His Messiah. For now... He is patiently waiting. Our second point, God is patient. It only took us a few minutes to read the names and the nations and the cities of chapter 10, but we're looking at hundreds and thousands of years of development, hundreds of years of spreading and advancement and settlement, building and ruling, and the list we have is not the brightest picture of mankind. I'm sure you recognize some of the names as we read through it. God has plans unfolding from the line of Japheth comes the Medes or the, the sons of Madai who took down the Babylonians or from Javan come the Ionian Greeks or we see uh, Ashkenaz had the Scythians who Paul mentions by the way these barbarians of the steppe he has concern for them from Ham we see Egypt listed great nations that come nations that are known for persecuting. Here, Egypt is the one who puts Israel in bondage and rules over them. From Canaan, we get, we, we get uh, the nation of Cana, Canaan, a wicked enemy of Israel, possessor of the promised land. We see there's this one interesting man that rises up, Nimrod. Uh, I don't know if that's where... Uh, Ruth asked me, is this where the phrase, why are you being a Nimrod, comes from? I have no idea. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, he's described as this mighty warrior before the eyes of the Lord that God takes uh, notice of him. And you think, oh, that's probably a good thing. You know, here's a, here's a good character that's, that's risen up. His name means uh, we shall rebel. <laughs> and mighty there in the Hebrew can mean that he is instead tyrant. That Nimrod's not hunting animals. Nimrod's hunting people. Nimrod's building his kingdom and making his name great. He is a mighty warrior. He's a man who brings persecution and terror. This Again, this is the list that we have. Sidon, the Jebusites, we have the Amorites, we have Sodom and Gomorrah in this list. Nations that met the wrath of God in just a second when fire fell from heaven. And it would be easy to say with names and wickedness such as the people listed. Such as listed before us. God, why are you continuing this story? God, why are you so patient? These people that have come off the ark, these families that have grown up, go on to do wicked and terrible things. The Babylonians? These are the ones you're going to populate the earth with and send out over the world? Why are you patient with sinners? Patience isn't exemption. And patience isn't forgetfulness. The rest of the Old Testament will unpack many of these peoples and nations and cities. And many a psalmist will look and see the way these nations and cities and peoples act and say, how long, O Lord? Psalm 73 particularly says uh, that Israel's looking out on the nations and going, I'm envious. Envious of the prosperity of the wicked that they don't seem to have the troubles that I have. They grow fat and happy and wear pride as a necklace, it says. And they set their mouths against the heavens. It's like they can say whatever they want towards God and He doesn't respond. And their tongues, it says, strut throughout the earth. Who is like me? Who is like me? Why is God patient you see his patience is a part of the same redemptive story that's why Moses ends with recounting Shem's line from Shem we get the name Eber which is likely what the Hebrews name was derived from from Eber comes Abram and ultimately the Jews and the Christ I said earlier his plan is expansive in particular expansive as He causes the nations to grow and thrive, in particular as He's raising up from one man a family, a nation, and a Savior to do what the ark didn't accomplish, this patient God is slowly working out His plan through thousands of years with an ark that ends in a consummation, a completion, a completely making new all things. New bodies. (laughs) Can't wait for that. Full head of hair again. No more sin. No more struggle. 
We know as we read this, God's patience has run out with many of these nations and they are gone like a dust in the wind. We can't even find some of their cities. If we do, it's just a stack of rubble and rock. And new nations have come, but none will outlast the inevitable day of Christ's return. So why is God patient? It's for you and I. His Word tells us, Romans 2, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His patience is an exemption from judgment, nor is it forgetfulness. Instead, it is tied to His gracious nature. In His patience is His kindness that we might turn to Him. Why it is still today that we might turn to Him. It's as patient as an ark that had open doors for 120 years. It's that kind of patience. An ark that said, come and be saved. Where 2 Peter 3 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. What may seem as epically long to us as we wait for His coming again as nations rise and fall, wicked men rule, what is time and day to eternal God? The Lord is not slow, Peter goes on to say, to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you. Not wishing, listen to this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The wicked, all those nations, all those people, us, The wicked are given time to repent as long as is it called today. As long as you still breathe air, there is time. And you might counter, I've gone too far. There is no way God would be gracious to me. I've gone too far. I've done too much. I've rebelled too much. How could God be gracious with me? I have spurned the heavens. Is this true for Nineveh? One of the nations listed? That God sent a a prophet to say, judgment's going to fall on you. You have this many days to live. And they put sackcloth on and they repented immediately. The whole of Nineveh. Was this true for Babylon? The one who dragged off the people of God? No, we just preached about Nebuchadnezzar, this king of the world basically, who was humbled. God was patient. God was patient. It would only be human pride that would say God could never rise to save me. Do you dare question the power of God to do what He wants? And won't He do it in salvation? See me do it, He says. I will save the brokenhearted. I will save those who can find no hope as He does among the nations. So He does to the rebellious heart. 
He wishes that no one perish. Don't forget it. Let that land on your soul and your heart and your mind this morning. Repentance and time are on your side because we deal with a gracious and a patient God. These nations have not stood in the day of His judgment and neither shall we if we don't take hold of His promise of a Savior. The ark warns of this. The table of nations warns of this. That we may know Christ, receive Him as Lord and Savior, and He remains patient with us. Listen, even after receiving Him, He remains patient with us. <laughs> because you're still not washed completely clean, are you? You feel the, the, the body, the flesh, fighting with the Spirit. He's patient. Come now, do not delay, for the day draws near. God is gracious, God is patient, and lastly, God is sovereign to bring it all to closure. Here God preserves for us the record of nations from the line of Japheth, which spreads to the furthest lands, often in the Scripture that's called the coastlands, to Shem, who will be that family, that focus family for the rest of the Old Testament. All the while, it shows us something about God's sovereign plan. Verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. In their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You see, he puts each one, each person, each nation, nation in its spot. He places the nations where he would have them and he defines their border and he raises up kings and he puts them down. And he may use even his enemies as his servants. What do we have to fear with such a God ruling in this world? What a God we have that is sovereign and can call the earth into substance by His very Word. What a God we have who can charge the waters to rise up and cover the whole earth. What a God we have that can once again fill all the earth with His image bearers and His people. What, we, what a God we have that can look out on a ravaged world by sin. And say, watch what I will do for my people. In Him we live and move and have our being as did all the nations before us. And a lot of these nations immediately, it seems, would go out and trade His glory for some handmade idols. And they would make for themselves uh, homes and gather to themselves the whole of the land, it would seem. But in doing so, they would lose their soul. You see, God does not merely wait in patience, but He orchestrates the means and the end by which He would save us all. I love what Luther, Martin Luther has to say about this chapter. Look, it was slim pickings, by the way, when I was trying to get help on this chapter. One commentator that I like to look to says, don't preach it. There's no gospel there. Uh, just teach it in a Sunday school lesson. Challenge accepted. We have a reason, Luther says, to regard the Holy, the, the Holy Bible highly and to consider it the most precious treasure. He says this chapter, even though it be considered full of dead words and names, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first to the middle to the end of all things. 
From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed to Seth. From Seth to Noah. From Noah to Shem. And from Shem to Eber. And from Eber to Abraham. Until we come all the way to the Christ. He says the sovereign God is showing the beginning of His work which will bring us onward to Christ Jesus and to the end. All the while, as Moses writes this, he's writing to the Israelites who are getting ready to go into the promised land. He focuses on the line of Shem and brings us to Abraham. He shows us that God in His sovereignty never forgets the nations. The one who rules over the nations doesn't simply just crush them underfoot. He never forgets about them. As we saw in chapter 12, he says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, he doesn't just make Abraham, Abram's family great just to make it great, better than what the other nations could build for themselves. Why did he make Abram a great nation? I will bless those who bless you and Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then he says this, In you, Abram, in your family, I will bless all the families of the earth. Only a sovereign God could say that. Only a sovereign God could act that out through history and all the people that are rebelling against Him that try to frustrate His plans. Only a sovereign God could continue that thread on through to the very end. None of those people will be forgotten. So that Isaiah picks up with confidence. I want to read this to you. When he's talking about the chosen servant that will come, about the Messiah, he says this. Chapter 42, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, sovereignty, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations he'll not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street listen to this a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench and he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint this messiah or be discouraged till he gets what he came for till he has established justice in all the earth and to the coastlands and the coastlands wait for us all by the way coastlands that's Japheth's family says that they spread out to the coastlands and Isaiah saying he's going to come even to you the ones who have spread out to the ends of the earth he goes on to say thus says God the Lord who created heaven's sovereignty and stretch them out, sovereignty who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. No one can take you from me, John 10 says. Why, sovereign? I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. 
And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you them. A sovereign God with a sovereign plan. Now, this gracious, patient, and sovereign Lord leaves us with this application from today's passage. I want you to see how gracious He is in salvation. See that He even now extends hope to all nations. That He's a God who keeps record. That's part of what Genesis 10 is all about. He is the God who has kept record of our origin. See how He recorded their names in this book so that they might not be forgotten. Well, know this, that He keeps another book. He is a bookkeeper after all. It says in Revelation 3, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And we are taught also of his patience. In it we see his regard for the nations. It's the same regard that we should have for those around us. As He sets the known world and its roots before us in chapter 11, so He also sets the nations before us in evangelism. That we might see we are one blood. That we might sit here and not say, you know, let's keep building this thing. We've got a good thing going. Let's keep building this thing in this building and have no regard for those that are right outside of our door, for the the nations that are set before us. What does the world need to hear but of a Savior who loves them and desires that no one should perish? This is the last thing that Christ said to His disciples, to His apostles before He sent them out. It's It's of total importance for the church to understand and see that it wasn't just for those men who were to go and build something and share the Gospel. That commission was for His church, His bride, to go into the world because He is patient and He has yet to cause His wrath to fall upon mankind. And as long as He is gracious and patient, may we go seek and find and share this good news. And finally, what comfort we might have in His sovereignty. He will hold us in His hand as much as He protected that precious seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15. He protected it immediately in chapter 4. What is the first thing Satan tries to do but crush the seed when a brother kills another brother? And yet another rises. What of the seed when we get to the, the ark Will it, will it fail? Will God's promises fail? No, it's a sovereign God that upholds this thread and line of redemption through exile all the way to Christ where it would seem the seed is being crushed. Did God not see Him through suffering, through the cross, and up from the grave? This sovereign God gave as an inheritance to His Son His people. Us. You are the Son's inheritance. Will the sovereign God ever say, you know, Son, I gave you that as a gift, but I'm super disappointed with these people, so I'm going to take it back. No, you are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. So that nothing might separate you from His love. No principality, no power, nor nothing 
that can be found under heaven shall separate us from his love and he will sovereignly watch over his people until his return. Trust God. Trust his Savior. This is where the story of redemption leads us. From the beginning to the end. Let's pray.